Welcome to episode 192. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Pact. In 2020's The Dark and the Wicked, the farm where it was shot was at the director Brian Bertino's family farm. Shout out to our new patron Blake Bonafetti and to our awesome friend Macy Baker. Signing up at patreon.com slash the Boo Crew gets you pens, buttons, stickers, and past video episodes of the Boo Crew TV show available on Bloody Disgusting TV on Roku. On our Patreon site, you can watch those videos on demand. This time around, you're joined by Tiller Russell, who will guide you through the world of his new four-part documentary series, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, premiering on Netflix at time of release January 13th. It's the true story of the pursuit of Richard Ramirez in the Los Angeles of the mid-1980s. It's a gripping story told through the eyes of the investigators, the victims, and their families. Learn the shocking facts of the case that have been previously unexplored and how a community became heroes. If you enjoy this show, check out episode 115 with former L.A. homicide detective Robert Souza and episode 163 with Bailey Sarian. Episode 192 starts now. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parents. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for Ah! Horror Homework. Happy New Year to you. We're going to go around the room and around the world wide web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown. <laughs> to each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must see or perhaps worth a revisit. First off, things to look forward to in 2021. I don't know. It's been a crazy 2021, so I never know what surprises are coming our way, but I really want to go to Disneyland. Like, I really hope that I'm on the Haunted Mansion this you know, sometime open, right? this year. No, it's not. I mean, for vaccines, yeah. but... Yes, it is. That's right. But Wait, did they start doing that yet, though? Can you I honestly go? Is week, it open to the public? I think this week yeah, they're th- opening. Th- this week or something, yeah. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Like, everybody can go get vaccines? No, oh. no, 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 no. You may not. I think <laughs> it's like the second level... Different tiers of yeah, I think it's, first responders or yeah, down the chain of command, you know. Yeah, we're we're low, so we won't be visiting Disneyland in the next week. <laughs> but hopefully soon. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to getting our kids out of the house yeah. and away from me. Maybe Halloween will be back on this year if we keep on going down the vaccine route, right? I really hope. Well, Fauci made that announcement today. At time of release that he hopes and predicts that we could be in concerts by the end of the year, which would be amazing. And if that's the case, maybe we will be in Universal Halloween Horror Nights and not Scary Farm and all that good stuff and all the haunts wherever you are listening right now. The party will go on. We'll be the ones wearing masks. Ah. Yes, I like that. (laughs) Once this is all kind of put behind us, like in the roaring 20s, because there was... Was it the flu, the Spanish flu, that everybody was in quarantine and they weren't doing anything and 
people were hunkered down and then like the roaring 20s happened and people were doing everything going to parties and like it was a great time so I really hope that that's what's gonna happen here like I don't want to be home for like four months one thing that I'm looking forward to it's coming up really quick is the new season of M. Night Shyamalan's Servant which will be out yes this week which is like one of the coolest horror centric TV shows I think I've ever seen Oh my gosh, yeah. it's really fun. I feel like it's a, a cousin to the show You. It's so good. It's like You because I think it's the pace that it moves at. Does that make sense? Yeah, in the sense that it gives you a lot in every episode and leaves you really baited strongly for the next one to come along to the point where you can't just stop watching them. If you have the other episodes available, you have to keep crashing right. through them. Yeah, that's exactly. Everything's a cliffhanger. Yeah. And the thing about Servant is the episodes are fairly short. They're like 30, 35 minutes yeah. or so. Yes. So you just want to rip all, all the way through them. And they're just expertly told. And there's not a wasted shot in the series. Yeah, it's like they each end on a cliffhanger and it just sucks you in. Because you're like, what's going to happen next? You know? But the cool thing is, if and a lot of people don't know this, and, and I'm shocked, is that if you have a new iPhone or a new computer or new anything Apple... You get a year free of Apple TV Plus. Oh, I so didn't even know you can, that. You get to you sign up. You get a year free. It's free, you know. And this is like the one horror show you could watch on Apple TV Plus right now. I don't know what else is in the works, but this is a great one. Also coming up this year, we're supposed to see season two of Creep Show, and word yes. is Marilyn Manson's on board as well as Ali Larder, Barbara Crampton, C. Thomas Howell, Brecken Meyer, and Ted Ramey. In May, we're supposed to see Darren Bowsman's Spiral. We got Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass on the way. Morbius just got pushed to October 8th. A Quiet Place 2 at time of release is due in April. We'll see what happens with that. The Conjuring 3 is set for June. Ghostbusters Afterlife June as well. Halloween Kills. Adam's Family 2, the animated movie. Malignant from James Wan. That's going to be awesome. I know Karin Kusama's got a Dracula film in the works. Not sure what stage that's going to be, but so much to look forward to. And Guillermo del Toro apparently has a stop motion project, Pinocchio, for Netflix, and as well as a new movie called Nightmare Alley coming out this year, apparently, too. And this doesn't even count like all the great stuff that's going to come out on Shudder and Amazon Prime and Netflix. That's not on the radar yet. Yeah, true. true. There's new stuff that seems to be coming out every week that we, we don't know about just by surprise, which is amazing. Yep. So, Leo, class is in session. Let's do some horror homework. What did you assign us this week? I watched the movie called Them. Like the classic Them? Isn't it about the giant ants? <laughs> no, but so close to it because I thought the same thing. I'm like, is this that movie about the ants? And I, and I clicked on this or watched it. I'm like, this is in French. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> this one is a Them from 2006 directed by david moreau so this movie stars olivia bonamy michael cohen and adriana moco in this french horror film a group of hooded strangers stalk a couple now clementine is a french teacher living in romania with her husband lucas who uh, arrives home one ordinary evening but in the middle of the night strange things start to happen and soon the couple is being pursued and tormented by a group of hooded strangers you can see where that one's going. <laughs> this movie plays out as a slow burn, like at first, uh, it's slowly building up the tension from the opening scene to the cat and mouse see us, you know, chase inside their home and on their property. Uh, most of it's set in darkness, in the shadows, so there's a lot of play with dark corners, 
negative spaces and things that go bump in the night. All my favorite aspects of a horror movie. To me, this one is like, imagine watching The Strangers meet Alexander Aja's high tension. It's right there. It's like, when it comes to home invasion movies, this, this horror is very real. It makes me think of those awful real-life true crimes by like the Manson family or like the Night Stalker, that kind of stuff. So if these are the kind of movies that scare you, this is a good one. This movie has some great camera work. I love the, I love the cameraman point of view at times, and it also has handheld shots. So it makes you feel like you're, like you're in their space, adding to that tension of just about every scene. Puts you right in the middle, you know? This movie doesn't, it doesn't let up. It keeps ramping up the tension as it unfolds room to room and location to location. And, uh, oh yeah, you can't have a French horror without some violence and a disturbing ending, right? You know, this movie was filmed at the Castle Film Studios in Bucharest, Romania. You guys are familiar with that location? It's known as the location where they filmed The Nun. Oh, that's Trevor's yeah. favorite place. I love that. Man, that yeah. movie looks great. <laughs> so I'm really curious, because this movie has some great, like, underground tunnel scenes and stuff that are just downright creepy. And I'm curious if those are the same places where The Nun was filmed underground, you know, because it looks, you can't say it looks similar because it was dressed up, obviously, obviously, for The Nun, you know, differently from this movie. But I wonder if they're one in the same, you know, locations, but very creepy. So if you enjoy movies like um, Alexander Aja's High Tension or Inside or Martyrs, all those three uh, French horror films, this film is right up there with them. And it's currently streaming on Shutter, so I recommend it. Check it out. It's called Them from 2006. Nice. Awesome, man. All right, Lauren and I went back to 2015 for a film directed by Lenny Abramson, starring Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, called Room. So yes. This film won a gang of awards, 104 to be exact, including 140 nominations. It got Brie Larson the Oscar for Best Actress, three nominations. Brie also won a 2016 Golden Globe for this, a BAFTA Award, and the Screen Actors Guild Award. So it's based on the novel by Emma Donahue about her mother and her son and their attempts to gain freedom after being held captive for seven years. It's got a runtime of about two hours. Every one of those minutes is incredibly compelling. The first half of this film is wildly claustrophobic and disturbing. Features astounding performances from Bree and Jacob as you allow the story to creep up around you. There is a remarkable intensity as you experience that build of the lines being colored in for you. It depicts unspeakable horrors and asks really engaging questions, demands conversation, and is uplifting all at the same time. An absolute emotional roller coaster. And I don't know, Lauren, you and I like missed the boat on this one because this was a new discovery for us, right? Yeah, it really was. Leo, have you seen it? I did. I saw it that year it came out. I really loved it. It was it was one of the first times I ever noticed Brie Larson's role and Jacob Tremblay. Of course, he's done bigger movies and stuff since. But yeah, I love that movie. It's, it's great. It's disturbing, though, you know? Yeah, it's definitely like makes you <laughs> claustrophobic. Yeah. Like, my skin was crawling. I was just like, where is this going? And the acting, the acting was amazing. And it was just really well written. It didn't seem like two hours, like the second hour, because it takes us forever to watch movies. Yeah, usually a two hour movie, man. We're out after 30 minutes and we got to break it up over a week or whatever. This one, we sat down and watched all the way through. We couldn't turn turn it off. I was like, what is going to happen? So the story of 
the book on which the story is based upon was inspired by the real life case of Elizabeth Fritzel, who was kidnapped and held hostage by her father from the age of 18 in the basement of her own house where she was raped and abused for like 24 years. During this time, she gave birth to seven children. And when the older daughter got sick, he brought Elizabeth along to the hospital where she was able to tell someone her story. The children had to go through therapy and treatment for years before going back into society. And some interesting facts about the film is Emma Watson, Rooney Mara, Shailene Woodley, and Mia Wasikowska were originally considered for the role of the mother. The room set itself was built at Pinewood Studios in good old Toronto. (laughs) And to prep for the big role, Brie isolated herself for a month with no phone or internet and was put on a strict diet to get into the experience of her character. She said during the last week, she went into a depression and would cry all day. It was really relatable because isolation and we're in isolation and yeah reliving i think maybe if there's a time to watch this movie and sort of like relate which i mean you can't completely relate but this house is is growing smaller and smaller by the day because it's the same thing over and over again yeah and we're sure it's (laughs) the same thing for you too listening yes More than 2,000 actors were auditioned for the role of the five-year-old boy, Jack, that eventually went to Jacob Tremblay, who was eight at the time. And during downtime filming, Brie would often sit in the corner and write in the diary of her character. So we strongly recommend Room. It's not straight up horror, but horror adjacent with elements of true crime and is a story of strength and courage with Amazing acting, phenomenal story, and it's just awesome. If you're looking for something a little bit different, it will not disappoint. The Boo Crew will be right back. Hot summer streets and the pavements are burning, I said. In the 1980s, we were proud of the city. L.A. was glamorous. But if you went around to the other side... L.A. could be a very dark place. I was on the freeway, and here comes somebody speeding, and all of a sudden he just swerves around my car. It's like he's right there, like a moment stop. And he has this horrible big grin, and he's missing all these teeth. He just stared at me like a killer clown. You got us a serial killer. You could sense it. There's evil in that man. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an internationally renowned filmmaker and storyteller. He has helmed acclaimed documentaries like 2001's Cockfight, Change Up, Bad Boys of Summer, The 7-5, and The Last Narc. He has written for the multi-award winning shows Chicago Fire and Chicago PD, produced Kidnap and Rescue for Discovery, and the Golden Globe-nominated film Bernie, starring Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, and Matthew McConaughey. 
He has an incredible immersive visual style and finds unique ways to propel you through a narrative while making the viewer truly feel a part of it. He also has a gift of being able to nurture a trusting environment, enabling other people to effectively tell their stories in evocative ways. Premiering on Netflix January 13th is a stunning four-part docuseries that takes you along on the journey to capture one of the most notorious murderers in American history, Richard Ramirez. It's called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. We are honored to be joined by its director, Tiller Russell. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And congratulations on this absolutely riveting work. Just yes. getting going. Tell us when you first heard about the Night Stalker. Well, it was, just, you know, this is one of those iconic stories, which is kind of hiding in plain sight, which as a filmmaker ends up becoming kind of a wonderful gift to you if the definitive telling of it hasn't been done. So what happened is, you know, all of my work, really, my, my entire professional life is about cops and crooks and the underworld and oftentimes the thin and porous line between the two. And in a weird way, to me, it's kind of all one movie. It's all the same movie, whether it's Michael Dowd and the seven five or my upcoming feature film, Silk Road or the Night Stalker. Really, all of this is sort of is part of one continuum and body of work. And the longer I go on, oftentimes these stories end up finding me. And that's what happened in this case. A guy that I write with, my producing partner on this, Tim Walsh, who we were working for Dick Wolf at the time, writing for his television series, came to me one night and he said, listen, man, I, I met the, uh, you know, the homicide cop that, that worked the Night Stalker case. And this guy's amazing. I think there may be a documentary here. You want to go out to dinner with him? And anytime I get that invitation, you know, hey, here's a fascinating like cop or here's a fascinating gangster, I automatically say yes and, and, and sort of, you know, always, always jump on board. And so I went out, uh, Tim and I went out to, to dinner with Gil Carrillo, who's you know, one of the two lead investigators on, on the Night Stalker case. And I sat down with Gil Carrillo and we were in this like old school LA uh, bar restaurant, Monty's in the Valley. Great, great spot. Great spot for a steak and a martini if you're ever in the neighborhood. And I was sitting there and I was looking at Gil and I was listening to him tell the story about this long, hot summer, uh, you know, 1985 in Los Angeles and these series of murders that began to plague the city and how he was this kind of young, up and coming homicide investigator, you know, guy from the streets, Latino guy. Uh, and he called this case. And, and he then began to unfurl the story for me of what happened that summer and what it was like for him to investigate it. And as, as I was sitting there watching him, you know, in, framed in this booth in this old school LA venue, I just thought, man, this is a, this is a movie. This is a TV series. And so away we go, as they say. Where were you uh, during the Night Stalker serial killer era of 1984-85? Were you living in Los Angeles at the time? It's interesting. I was not in LA. I was a kid at the time. So I was born in 74. I was 11 at the time. Um, I was in Dallas, Texas. I grew up in, in Dallas, Texas. And my dad was in the DA's office depicted in Errol Morris's film, The Thin Blue Line. Right. So all my life, I've been kind of being dragged around to, you know, jails and courthouses and precincts and whatever else. So that, you know, I think my dad's intention was that I would be, uh, you know, scared straight. And instead, I kind of imprinted like a duck. And I was like, that's my that's my world, man. And so I've ended up kind of, you know, following those those stories ever since. And so it, this was a story that I knew of. You know, it's one of the most kind of iconic serial killer stories in American history, at least, you know, during my lifetime. And as I began to talk to people in the early stages of investigating the story, anyone who was in L.A. at the time 
remembered it acutely and vividly and specifically. And, you know, it was one of those moments in time that was just etched in people's consciousness. And when you come across a story like that, that has its hooks in that deep to people's like fears and imaginations, you know, there's going to be amazing storytellers that come forward. So for us, it became this enterprise of, we want this to be a portrait of the city. You know, it's LA as a tapestry where, yes, it's about the homicide cops that work it. Yes, it's about the reporters that report it. Yes, it's about the victims who suffer his depredations, and it's about the survivors and family members, but it's also about the random people that he crossed paths with that then had these kind of brushes with the devil that overall hopefully gives you this, you know, mosaic-like portrait of the city, you know, at a very specific place in time. It's no longer exists, you know, it's a bygone LA. Yeah, you really do that effectively right from go when we see the old archival footage of the city and aerial shots and news clips and things like that and music even like Glory Days, Bruce Springsteen kind of overshooting the whole thing. And then it takes that sinister twist, which is a great way into the story. And oddly enough, uh, Lauren and Leo both grew up and born and raised in L.A. and they talk about that era very vividly. You guys have got to remember it, right? You've got to have yeah, I remember I was like four or five and I remember we lived my mom and I lived in an apartment building and it was facing the street and there was like a little patio and I used to jump outside the patio and just walk around the streets and she would leave the sliding glass door open and I remember the day she was like no no more you cannot go over this we're locking the doors and I remember how hot it was that summer and like you could see like the sweat on the walls and I couldn't understand like why my freedom was now gone and she said to me there there's a bad man out there a monster and and he's taking kids and it scared me and I I'll never forget that. And then like, that's, that's, that's exactly what I'm literally every person I know has that, that sort of experienced it. And Leo, like, what do you remember? I just out of curiosity. I was 10 years old. So, and I remember that it was a sweltering summer, both 84, 85. We had the Olympics, 84, 85 was another heat wave. And we had to sleep with the windows closed. I mean, it was a sweat box and no matter where you lived, where you stayed, because the fear was real. In fact, um, just down the street from where I live, one of his first victims, uh, you know, he took his first victim here. I believe it was Jenny Vincow. It was uh, June 28th of 84. That happened just down the street here in, in uh, Glassell Park. And that wasn't connected till much later, you know, in the cases. But my parents knew that victim. Well, and, and, and that's what I kept finding in, in telling the story is there were all these threads. So as soon as you began to pick at it, like everybody knows somebody, whether it's a victim or a cop or, a, you know, somebody that they cross paths with in the library, it was it affected so many lives, like you're saying. Not only that, but uh, the sightings were every I mean, just about when somebody said, I saw him or he came to my door. I mean, it wasn't just like made up in your head. It, it was very believable. And because everybody described them to the T and that just sent chills on your spine. And everybody I knew that was an adult had guns at that time. All of a sudden it's like the guns came out and you're like, this is kind of scary. A a crazy footnote to the story is, you know, the bars that are on the windows and houses in LA, that's a a product, which people don't know that's that began this summer because it was a hot summer and like, you know, you had to like, if you don't have AC, you're having to leave your windows open. But if you don't want the Night Stalker climbing in, people are putting up bars. So to this day, all the bars that are over windows in LA, that's a product of the Night Stalker. 
that's crazy. That's insane. They put bars yeah. on our windows after that, and I never made the correlation because I was so that's young. Right. But I remember us getting these black bars, and I was like, what is this? The Boo Crew will be right back. Perhaps it was inevitable. For years, Vincent Price has played the role of Dr. Death. For years, he has pretended to be a hideous, murdering monster. Now, he has actually become one. American International presents Vincent Price in Madhouse. Madhouse, where lunacy lives, fear lurks, evil walks, and death waits. Madhouse, an endless nightmare from which there is no return. Madhouse, a cinematic shock treatment guaranteed to scare you out of your mind. No one ever leaves Madhouse. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. wanted to get into a little bit of just, you know, the behind the scenes structure of building a story like this, the mechanics of the presentation from choosing the music, deciding what footage to glitch out or the lighting of the investigators being interviewed, as he said, in that that old restaurant and deciding when to use actualities from Richard himself and when to put in crime scene photos. What experience did you want to craft for us? It's a great question. And, and like one of the, the fun, I work in both fiction and nonfiction, right? Narrative and, and docs. And they're, they're in some ways exactly the same enterprise, but in some ways they're kind of the inverse of each other. You know, somebody once said to me, how do you make a guitar? You take a piece of wood and you cut away everything that doesn't look like the guitar. And, you know, said that sort of tongue in cheek, but I thought that actually is what nonfiction is because you gather all these materials together, right? Where you're, okay, anybody that's willing to tell you their story from the cops to the victims to, you know, the reporters to whoever else. And so you, then you, you sort of begin harvesting these stories. Then you go and you begin to harvest the archival record. Okay. Can we get access to the crime scene photos? Okay. Um, can we get access to the news reports? And then at each stage in the game, you know, it's funny, people have this, there's this kind of, you know, the like auteur theory of filmmaking and whatever, where directors get all, all, all the credit. And the truth of the matter is there's this amazing symphony of collaborators that are working on this from, you know, your producers and the producers that I've been working with for years, you know, Eli Holtzman and Aaron Sedman from the 7-5 to Operation Odessa to the last NARC to this and, and these collaborators. And then you get like an amazing cinematographer like the one that we had here, who comes in and is like, okay, what are the essential ingredients to this? This is a story that takes place in a bygone Los Angeles. The entire story is nocturnal. It happens at night. That's when you know, these crimes happen. That's when the homicide cops turn up. So in having these conversations with these collaborators, the structure of it and the style of it begins to reveal itself to you if you will listen to it and surround yourself with really smart people. As I've been fortunate enough to do. And so it was like, okay, this is a film noir. 
So every interview needs to be in an iconic LA locale that could be, could have existed in 1985 so that you begin then casting the locations for the interviews. Then, okay, everything's going to be shot at night. So it needs to have night lighting. Okay, we're going to use red as a defining color. So if you look at every interview frame, there's some little piece of red that our brilliant cinematographer baked in everywhere. Nicola Marsh is also an amazing director in her own right. And then our, you know, archival producers are like, okay, we're going to go track down every, like, where's the photo that, you know, the photos that you had that you, you know, were following the Dodgers that summer. And you ended up taking pictures when people surrounded the station, when Ramirez was apprehended or, um, you know, this amazing archival producer, Patty Bobek, who, you know, we heard, wait a minute, there was an author that had done some interviews with Ramirez. We're needing to like bring this guy to life and kind of, animate his perspective and make him a character in this as well. So it was then, you know, flying out to go meet with the widow of the author, you know, who generously uncovered those tapes that her, uh, you know, past husband had in those interviews had done. Then it's digitizing it. And then it's hiring brilliant composers like the Blair brothers, you know, who have this amazing body of work of, of, you know, narrative, you know, films, amazing narrative films, as well as docs. And so at every stage in it, I think it's, it's casting in a way where you're choosing, okay, who are the people that are telling the story? Who's the person that's behind the camera? And like, as a director, there's this kind of like, almost like imposter syndrome where it's like, okay, I'm not telling the story. I'm not operating the camera. I'm not editing. What the hell do I do? You know? Um, and I once had this just by way of a, a sort of funny aside, I had this strange early formative relationship with Gary Busey, another story. Who, but he who told me, he said, here's the deal, man. On a film set, everybody is a spoke in the wheel. And the only thing they give a damn about is their spoke. Camera, they're just worried about, like, how does it look? Production design, they're just worried about, you know, actor, they're only worried about this. And he's like, your job is to be the quiet center of the wheel and make sure that the wheel turns. And I thought, that's great, man. So I, I stole that and have been, that's kind of been my mantra ever since. Yeah, was it ever discussed with the two detectives, Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo, about any specific evidence that perhaps you all agreed upon not to include in this documentary? Well, you know, there, there's a couple of, uh, of kind of moral, ethical and aesthetic concerns that, that, that come up, you know, pretty quickly in it. One is we had access to an extraordinary archive of materials, right? We had, you know, hundreds of crime scene photos where literally, you know, the original contact sheets and everything else and, you know, real crime scene photos that are thoroughly being documented, that are thoroughly documenting are grotesque and gruesome and horrifying. So, but then it gave us ideas graphically, for example, of like, okay, well, since we have photos of a bunch of different angles of this room, can we go to like a brilliant graphics company and have them like recreate in 3D space what that room looks like and then move the camera around? So, so that's what we did and worked with this amazing company in France, Myth Factory, to do it. So then there becomes these questions like, man, well, that photo is just simply too horrifying or uh, grotesque to do. So we're going to pull back from that. Then there's the question of what ended up happening in this case. You know, people know Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was a serial killer who committed all these murders. What many people who don't know the story intimately know is that he was also abducting children. 
and molesting them, you know, kidnapping kids and molesting them and sometimes murdering them, sometimes releasing them. Because what happened was the decision was made after he was apprehended. Okay, we've got this guy dead bang on the murders. We don't want to have to take all these kids that have been through this like horrifying experience, put them on the witness stand and re-traumatize them again. So that piece of the story never really entered the public record. And so this very strange and surreal phenomenon happened where when Ramirez hit the courtroom and the sort of cameras were there, he became this weird sort of obscure object of desire and fetishized like sex symbol. And I think part of the reason that that happened in a weird way, in spite of just the bizarreness of our culture, right? Like, why does this guy become the Jim Morrison of serial killers? But like, is the fact that those, the abductions of the kids was never entered into the court record. And that it wasn't like Richard Ramirez, child molester. Like, you're not going to get any, uh, there's not going to be any like celebritization of that. And so in a weird way, it was almost what we added to the record rather than what we removed from the record that was important, at least in that particular instance. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that was uh, one of our takeaways from the doc too, is we didn't hear that part of the story before. And that was particularly the way it was delivered. Really impactful. Was there any other moments that particularly about the case that you didn't know before that delving into this was particularly shocking or that you didn't realize? Well, I think a lot of it, it's all the personal stories that, that really hit you. Right. Because what happens is, you know, they say that like, they say that the news is kind of the first draft of history. So it ends up in the paper, you know, you come up with the name, the night stalker, somebody gets the collar, you know, whatever, whatever happens. And then it's only over time when you really go into the like specific human stories and impact. And I remember sitting with Gil and Gil telling the story of when he met the young woman, Anastasia Ronis, who's, you know, abducted and, and molested by Ramirez and miraculously released alive. And later on, he goes and and brings her to the, to, to the precinct to, to ID Ramirez in a lineup. And she is like at, you know, at this young, tender age, so incredibly self-possessed that she's able to like ID him uh, right away. And it just, in tears, were pouring down Gil's face as he told the story. And you, and you see this like hard-bitten, grizzled homicide detective, literally, you know, 35 years later, brought to tears at the memory of this powerful, resilient kid recounting, you know, IDing, this is the man that did this to me. And the reason I'm here is because I don't want him to hurt anybody else. And it just, Oh, it just floored me, you know, when Gil told that story. And so I thought this needs to be a portrait of the human side of all this way beyond the murder. Like, what is the what's the human impact? What's the toll it takes on the cops and, and on your families? And then sitting there eventually with Anastasia Ronas, who's the, you know, the young kidnap victim who tells her story. It was so um, incredibly haunting and powerful to just be in the room with her as she was recounting what happened to her in, you know, not shying away from it, not looking away and telling you exactly what it looked like and what was in the room, what music was playing. And yet she was so strong and refused to be victimized and defined by this. And like, yes, her innocence was taken away that day, but she is a strong woman for whom uh, that was not going to be the, you know, epigram or, uh, you know, of her life. 
and, and like watching her strength and resiliency, it was so moving and so powerful to see, to hear somebody saying, yes, this happened to me and I will not be victimized. And so it was like, at the same time, it was this cognitive dissonance of heartbreaking and like wanting to cry at the, at the horror and yet like pride at the resiliency and, and, and resilience and strength of the human spirit as embodied by this, you know, this kid and who went on to become this, this woman, uh, it was a really, it was a profound and powerful experience. That experience you're talking about resonates throughout this. And another element that really makes it unique is that how much time is spent remembering and honoring the victims and their courage almost as a celebration of, of them and honoring what they had to face and, and talking about that was uh, really interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, we very early on, we sort of, you, you have to ask yourself these ethical questions, which is like, dude, I don't want to make Richard Ramirez a rock star like that. We're not going to do. Uh, so we're going to tell these stories and, and sort of how you do that then is giving people the opportunity to tell their stories, particularly victims and survivors and family members, because it's so dehumanizing what happens oftentimes to these victims where you're a stat in somebody else's like murder spree and your entire life is reduced to that. It's not even an obituary. It's a line in somebody else's. And there, I think is this like great sadness and sometimes resentment among people who, you know, families who get branded by that story. So we sat down very early on and we said, we're going to tell victim stories, but, and we're going to tell them or, or, or those are their family members or survivors. And we're going to, we want them to, bring the person to life and who they were before so that you understand how impactful this was, because this was a story that, and I think this is why it was so kind of captivating at the time, as well as horrifying at the time is it could have been anybody, you know, these victims were kids, they were women, they were adult men, they were people that were sleeping in bed at night in their most vulnerable sort of, you know, when you would think you're at your most safe. And so to emotionally immersively make an audience experience that you have to visit, you have to relate to the people. And so we really wanted to, and so that's what we told everybody. And there were people that we approached that said, no way too traumatizing. Don't want to tell my story respectfully. Thank you for notifying me and, and great, you know, got the message, but anybody who did, we promised them this is going to be done in a thoughtful and nuanced and respectful way because you're entrusting us with these precious stories and memories. Yeah. You know, I was wondering about the uh, 1985 timeline with Detective Salerno and Carrillo. It's a very complete story and very well done in this documentary. Were the 84 murders later connected because of a possible disconnect with the different agencies, namely LAPD and Sheriff's Department at the time? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. There, there's, so what happened was, in a sense, there are, mul- there are multiple sort of timelines and chronologies, right? So Gil uh, Carrillo catches the Okazaki-Hernandez case, I think March 17th, 1985, which becomes the beginning of this investigation uh, for the purposes of LA County Sheriff's homicide, right? And they begin working the case from that moment in time forward. Eventually, Ramirez is you know, captured by the citizens, an amazing you know, twist right there and identified and 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 then all of the other open homicides open cases are gone back and re-examined so what other dots can be connected to this and so they begin to connect these previous murders and there's jenny vinkow the year before in 84 
and among others that that sort of go beyond what was investigated at the time. And so then the timeline is kind of excavated back in time to wait a minute. So there was, you know, these initial, this initial murder of Jenny Vincow, uh, which is almost a year earlier. And then what ends up happening also is eventually, I think in like 2009 via DNA evidence, there are um, some San Francisco murders, which are later uncovered as well, right? There are uh, some elderly sisters in, in, I think, the Tenderloin District in San Francisco that are unrelated, uh, that are connected murders, but were unaware of, people were unaware of at the time. And then there was even the like tragic murder of a, a young victim, you know, a child victim in San Francisco that was connected via DNA afterwards. And what was really, so the, the, the chronology, the, the, there's tentacles to the chronology, right, that continue to unfold. And what was really bracing was I remember interviewing uh, Ramirez's attorney. He looked at me and he said, this wasn't his first rodeo. And it made me realize just as it made that attorney realize, man, there's other people out there. There's other victims out there. We'll never know who all they are and who knows how many unsolved cases that are out there. That gives you pause. Because it's, it's like, wow, in a weird way, a story like this, here we are 35 years later, still kind of culturally processing this. And yet there are these threads and these tentacles that extend to unknown and unnamed victims. I just wanted to get your take on, I just don't understand personally, like how someone who does such horrible things is so idolized. Like there are people that are buying like, artwork that he did and sold from jail or like underwear that have his name like what goes on in a person's head to idolize and put this person on a pedestal it it was so crazy you know and it was we really kind of wrestled with and reckoned with that quite a bit because that is true like that happened there this guy became kind of an international sex symbol and you can't ignore that. And so in interview after interview, and, and, and sort of particularly, it was often in interviews with the women that, that, that were involved, um, you know, it was like, so what's your take on this? And it was always this very kind of like awkward moment in the interview when like, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask the question, they're kind of embarrassed to hear the question. And yet all of us have the question, right? And, and I think nobody's got the answer to it, right? we're all still asking and we're all still scratching our heads. And there's, there's, there's all this sort of like wild speculation, you know, is it just like, Oh, the quote unquote, you know, forbidden fruit, bad boy syndrome, but you know, or is it the fact that the kind of like American or global obsession with celebrity, like, what is it? If you're famous, it doesn't matter what you're for. It can be for pulling the trigger or for, you know, winning the Olympics. Once you're famous, you're in the zeitgeist. And I think these are kind of like, we're all culpable and complicit in some way or another in this, you know, here we are having this conversation about it because, because it's real and it's out there and you can't deny it, nor can you explain it because it's so just unfathomable and bonkers, but, but there it is. Yeah, I was wondering, did your investigation lead to the Cecil Hotel in downtown LA where the Lord says that he was known to stay from time to time and were there any victims at that location at all? Yeah, the you know, what was really a memorable evening we had spent on this that I think none of us will quite ever forget is at a certain point, we, we sort of began to map the, you know, the rampage, right, where you had every we had when we had literally like blow ups of the old school Thomas Guide maps. 
And on, remember that you guys remember the Thomas yeah, guide yeah. where you pulled <laughs> yeah. it like once upon a time and we actually, you know, figured out how to get anywhere in LA. And, and that was sort of, um, you know, kind of a visual touchstone really in some way or another for us. And we had, we had crime boards in the production office with like names of the victims, where the locations were and, you know, the little dots where they, where they all were and places where Ramirez had been cited or arrested or the Cecil hotel where he was known to reside or the bus station downtown, you know, where he kept his stuff. And one night when we went location scouting, as I said, this was a, you know, it was a nocturnal this whole experience. I like lived in like 1985 at night for a year and a half, but we went driving location scouting through and we went to every house. We went to every victim's house to see what was still there, what had changed. And we went downtown, we went to the Cecil, we went to the bus station and it was so eerie to be walking in the footsteps and retracing the paths and the routes all across LA, because it was like, you know, it felt like he had like taken a knife and just like ripped it across the like canvas of Los Angeles. And we were traversing that route again, all of us, you know, from DP Nicola Marsh to, you know, producer Paul Benoit to, you know, everybody that was there that night, James Carroll collaborator and segment director and friend, we would sit there kind of quietly and, and be walking at three in the morning, like outside the Cecil hotel and think like, there it is. You know, there's the, the city abides. We learned Richard was a student of serial killers, worshiped guys like the hillside strangler. Can you comment on that time period in the eighties where we saw a peak of active serial killers and what you think was going on at that time? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. Several people brought this up, uh, interview subjects that we interviewed. Zoe Turner, who's, uh, you know, this, this um, amazing character and uh, reporter, kind of nightcrawler reporter, of, on whom there's an amazing documentary, which I recommend to you. But Los Angeles was ground zero for this for a long time. And really, there's even a longer, weirder continuum in that, Manson was collared by Frank Salerno at Spawn Ranch and released. And then Salerno ended up working the Hillside Strangler case. And then Salerno ended up working the Night Stalker case. So just the weird, like overlapping Venn diagram of like, wait a minute, why so many serial killers in LA? What are the odds one cop would have crossed paths with three of the most iconic? And what the hell's going on like in like California and particularly, you know, in the eighties when you've got multiple serial killers working. And, and, and so that was one of the things that these, that these people spoke to, you know, and there's, there's, interesting theories about why that is. It's, you know, California has always been the land of kind of dreams and immigrants and magnetizing people from all over you know, the world and certainly all over America to, to kind of come to transform themselves, be, you know, step into LA and be somebody else. And yeah, that happens with movie stars. And it also happens with, you know, serial killers. And I don't know, you know, why is that? And, and also in this particular moment in time, you know, you have to remember contextually, this is like Reagan 80s America, right? The tap is on, the yuppies are rocking, Bruce's boss, you know, Michael Jackson's doing the moonwalk, it's live, eh? whatever, all, all that's happening at the time. And yet there's this dark underbelly to Los Angeles and, you know, that these killers are, are walking in. and it's again, that cognitive dissonance. It's like the David Lynch film uh, behind the white picket fence, you know? 
we had a former LAPD homicide detective, Robert Souza, who was the lead on the Laurel Canyon murders on our show, and he had stated that the capture of Ramirez was the end of an era for the serial killers. Why do you think such activity stopped all of a sudden? Well, I don't know. I don't, ha- I don't have the perfect answer to that, so I'm not going to speculate on it. I think these things are sort of cyclical and go in waves, where it there are periods and pockets of this that the culture kind of, for whatever reason, there's the cultural ferment that, and then it explodes and then it goes dormant again. But really, if you look all throughout, really all throughout human history, but certainly American history, it's something that, you know, it's like the Rolling Stones song, man. It's just a shot away. Uh, It's in all of us. And so it may be dormant, but I doubt it's gone. One last question. So after this, another project we'll see from you is a release of the Silk Road film starring Jason Clark. It's out February 19th. The last I had heard, what could you tell us about that? Yeah, it was an, this was an amazing experience as I had the opportunity to be making these kind of projects simultaneously. And, you know, both of them here, you know, here I am on my like lifetime's journey of chronicling crime in America. So I was living this kind of schizophrenic life toggling between Richard Ramirez, 1985, the Night Stalker and those homicide cops. And then, you know, the evolution of the, the drug war where suddenly it's like anybody can buy anything they want anytime on the internet. And it was the story of Ross Ulbricht and the the cat and mouse with the cops that were trying to bring him down with these incredible actors, Nick Robinson and Jason Clark and and a wonderful cast and crew. So everybody that digs uh, Night Stalker, I hope you check out, you know, the narrative work, um, you know, Silk Road as well. And then going to do the, uh, the remake of Operation Odessa after that. Oh, very cool, Tiller. Nice. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time and being so generous with your time today. We really appreciate it. And we love the doc, man. I'm a big fan and proud to be on, on the show with you guys. So, so thank you very much for having me. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 192. Special thanks to our guest, Tiller Russell. Watch his new documentary, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer on Netflix as of January 13th at time of release. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full-cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.